Well, good morning. Man, I don't know how uh, every time I preach, somehow uh, someone turns on the heater. It's a bad joke, and we have got to stop that. Uh, she said amen. Well, uh, so just so you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a profuse, like, sweater, so uh, I apologize in advance. But uh, I'm trying and praying to God I won't be a distraction to you today. So um, we will call ASD about that, I guess. But, um, man, here we go. When scientists uh, began tracking the health of 268 Harvard sophomores in 1938 during the Great Depression, they hoped that this long-term study would eventually reveal clues that led to healthier and happier lives. And what they got was a lot more. The Harvard adult study came out, the results in 2015, a few years ago, and what they found from it was that it was the longest study of adult life ever recorded that we know of in the history of mankind. They studied for now 80 years the lives of what is now 724 men. Women, I'm sorry, but in 1938, for whatever reason, it was only men. They continued that progression. We can email Harvard later. I'm sure they'll correct that, but uh, that's what it was, 724 men. And they tracked their lives year after year after year. They would meet with them. They would meet in their houses. They would go to their homes. They would sit with their wives. They'd ask questions about these men. They'd meet with their employers. They would walk all around, and they would literally multiple times a year check in on them and track their lives. And for 80 years, many of these men were tracked, and we watched how is their health, how is their life, how is their life satisfaction. And all of these kind of, this is a miraculous thing because projects of this kind rarely, rarely happen. It doesn't, it doesn't occur. Funding oftentimes dries up. People oftentimes, researchers get bored and they move on. And as we go from generation to generation, researchers even die. They quit. And so what we have found now in 2018, almost said 2017, 2018, nearly 60 of the original 724 men are still living. And they're still participating in that study today. They now are studying over 2,000 of their own family members as well. Now, this is what's crazy. When they started, they took two groups. They took the first group was this first sophomore class from 1938. And it was the Harvard sophomores. So they were very privileged, very sort of well-to-do people, very well-educated young men. And they began studying them. But they also wanted to have a group on the opposite end of the spectrum. So what they did is they went and they started working with some of the lowest, most disadvantaged income uh, folks within the Boston inner city. And they worked with young teenage boys. And they begin to track their lives. And so you had these very wealthy, well-to-do people. And you had these very uh, disadvantaged economically folks that lived with almost no electricity. Some of them without running water. And many of them, they were, as they were interviewed, they grew up to be factory workers. Some of them grew up to be lawyers. Some of them grew up to be doctors. Some of them grew up, even one of them grew up to be the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. What's crazy, some of them rose the ladder of social sort of affluence from the bottom to the top, and some of them actually declined off of this social ladder. And they went from the top, and they literally crashed, and their lives, in a lot of ways, seemingly looked like it crumbled. And what they found, the clearest message that they found in the entire research, they said the strongest correlation of data that they found over anything else was that the most valuable thing in someone's life was their relationships. It was the connection that they had to other human beings. They found that good relationships and strong community lead us to the healthier, happier, 
and longer lives. They learned one of the lessons that social connection, relationships, and community is so good for us that they could determine at the age of 50 how long somebody was going to live, not more so on how satisfied they were with their relationships than someone's cholesterol level. They found out that in this study that those who were more isolated, who were more by themselves, they their relationships and their life was more toxic. They found that their health would decline quicker in life. Their brain function would decline sooner. There were higher levels of Alzheimer's. They lived shorter lives. And this is really depressing. But they found out that it is as powerful to be lonely in life and consistently over the long term of time to be lonely in life. It is more destructive than alcoholism and smoking. It's amazing. What's crazy about this is that This is nothing new. This is nothing new. What scientists are discussing and what scientists are talking about now, 4,000 years we have had this in the word of God. It's been written that the good life is built on good relationships, that aloneness kills, that together, all of us together, we win. Genesis 1, you open it right up to the very beginning and God makes it very clear. He creates man from the very beginning. I mean, come on. Can we talk about one of the greatest quiet times ever, Adam and God? Wake up in the morning. What's up, God? Hey, how are you doing? Walking the breadth of the garden, hearing him talking to him. You know what I mean? He's right there. And yet God looks at it all and says, it's not good. This is not what I want. This is not what I intended. He's alone. I need to bring someone together with him. And we see that God begins to show us that we have to be together. We have to find a together. And so you read this. Even when you read on Jesus' last night in John 17, it'll be up on the screen here. But even as you read in Jesus' last night of his life, this is insane. He prays for himself. I mean, he's on on his knees in the garden weeping. Blood is coming out of his pores. Literally, scientists most believe that, that that's what was occurring. And he prays for himself and what he was about to walk through is he would go and give his life for you and for I so that we would be in communion with God. And he prays for himself and he prays for his disciples. And then check this out in verse 20. He prays for you. Hello, we can end the sermon today, okay? We can close it and go home. God prayed for you 2,000 years ago. If you're a believer in this room today, if you follow Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, he got on his knees, and here's what he says. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only. He's referring to the disciples. But I also ask for those who will believe in me. It is a Greek future tense there. Those who will believe through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you've sent me. Why? Why? C.S. Lewis calls it this dance. He says it's this dance, that there's this beautiful picture, even in creation, that community and communion began with God himself. It began with him. So when he created mankind, when he created all of us, it says that it was a co-working together. He said, let us make man in our image. He said, let us work together. Who's the us? God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it was this beautiful intertwining. And so what you even see here is the Son glorifying God, the Father, the Father glorifying the Son, the Spirit making much of Jesus. And it's this beautiful dance. It is this communion. And God is communal. And so today, I stand up here to you, and I'm telling you that one of the most important things in your life is community. 
It is the people you walk with, the people you rally with, the people you band around. And we throw that word out there all the time. I mean, it is like if you've been around the Christian culture for any period of time, we know that word is a little bit of a buzzword. Uh, you know, we've got to be an intentional community, man. I just want authentic, uh, intentional community. Let's just get in that. Let's get real authentic and real. You know what I mean? What does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to walk with people? What does it mean to be and live a life with people? What does it mean to be close to people? We throw that word around all the time. And at this church, what we've been talking about and where we're headed, hello, we are packed out to the brim today. People are sitting on the floor. The heater is on for some godforsaken reason. And we are in here today. And we've got to create more space. And we're excited about that. But where we are going, what we've been talking about, where we're going, we are saying we don't want to go where we're going unless this thing today that we're talking about becomes one of the cornerstones of everything we do. I would hate... If some of you walk in here today, I've got friends in here for the first time today, actually. I would hate if they came in here today and nobody met them, nobody invited them in. I would hate that if you came here, you didn't know somebody, if you just sat there. Look, I, I have been part, I've been a pastor at a megachurch before. I don't even know what the numbers are anymore on what a megachurch is. I mean, in the world of the globe of where we're at, this is a megachurch, by the way. Just want you to know that. There are people uh, housing with 12 people in a house right now, and they're hiding out to have church this morning on a Sunday. And so this is a big, large church, and it is so easy to get lost and hidden in here. It is so easy to walk in here, to sit in the back and never meet anybody. It is so easy to come and to sit in here and to get what you need, but never to belong. You know what I mean? Who, who, who have you belonged to before? Who have you been close to before? Who knows you so well? It is not easy stuff. It's messy stuff. Welcome to the church of God, his bride. But what makes us unique here is we are a family, we are a community that rallies around our identity in Christ. We have been, it says in Romans, grafted in to a family. I used to work at a church, and one of our taglines, the things that we would say all the time, we would say, we is greater than me. We would say, we is greater than me, and we put it on everything, because we wanted people to understand that we together is stronger than me. And God, his intention when he pulls us into this family is to tell us and help us understand that we are better together, that to get there, we have to go together. Amen? I mean, do you really believe that this morning? Or do we live as believers of Christ like the rest of the world that wants to pull back and wants to isolate and wants to take themselves away from the togetherness and is about self and compartmentalization? And this is what God is telling us today is he wants us to be together. If you're a Christian here, we have the same Savior. We have the same God. We have the same family. It is not hyperbole. It is not hype language this morning. I'm not trying to rally you around some sort of idea and some sort of notion. We're family, brother. Hey, sister. How are you? Come on in. I'm not trying to do that. This is the truth. This is the word of God. We are a family. We are a family in here today. We have to operate like a family. This is what 1 Peter 2.9 says. It'll be up on the screen. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. My goodness gracious. I don't know how you feel about yourself today. But there's royalty sitting in this room. You're chosen today. You feel alone, God chose you. You feel ostracized from the rest of the world, God said you're mine. You're royalty sitting in here today. We could close the Bible right now and be done with that. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Side note, 
Not that Tori and Nick, the pastors, may proclaim the excellencies of him, but that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. Not the pastors, but all of us in here. We're called to proclaim that with our lives. We're called to proclaim that with what we have. Together, we, we. And then this is it. As he details your identity, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy and now you have received mercy, there is a shift and our identity includes the family. So you are not only a chosen one, you are not only a royal priest, but you are in a family. You operate in the fam, okay? (laughs) Our primary identity is found in him. And so when God says you're my people, he says you're in my family. This is the most beautiful picture. I don't know if you've ever read the end of John chapter 21, but it's my, one of my favorite chapters because, y'all, I did not grow up in the church. I didn't grow up all clean cut and dry. I didn't look good. I didn't, like, you know, I just, I went to school here at University of Texas, and I just, let's just leave it at this. I made some terrible choices, okay? And I got friends in here that would be like, amen, I was there with you when you did that. Uh, and one of my favorite chapters, and it really just, it, it, it's, it messed me up in college, I heard a pastor here in town preach on it, and it was the chapter of John 21 where Jesus pursues, he pursues Peter after he's denied him three times. You ever noticed that he sits with him, he goes to where Peter is, he makes him breakfast in the early dawn. By the way, who makes breakfast for anybody? Like, you're not coming over to my house to get breakfast because I'll tell you what, my morning time is my time. I'm getting up, I'm wearing my PJs, I'm getting my latte, I'm getting my coffee, I'm doing my thing in the morning, and you're not coming, okay? If I invite you in, what am I saying to you? Your family. Your family. And God sits with Peter and he makes him this intimate breakfast. And this message wrecked me in college. You're part of my family. You can't be far away from me. You're in my family and family chases after each other. And this is what he says And so our first point is obviously that we are family and that it transcends everything, and it's truth. I heard one, uh, I love doing the, I got to do the research on this, and I don't know why, I was hyped up for doing the research on this, but when I read, I listened to one pastor talk about this idea, and he said this, bold statement, I have more in common with an Iranian nationalist that loves Jesus Christ than an American who wants nothing to do with Jesus Let me say that. Yeah, I heard one amen. Well, really quiet in here on that one. We have more in common with those who don't think politically, don't look like us, don't act like us, don't dress like us, don't talk like us, than somebody who who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. That is family, and I believe God wants us to look at each other that way. But somehow we find it so easy to identify as Christians and as believers with our differences more than with our commonalities. Isn't that crazy? That we love to talk about the worship music. It's better here. It's not great there. We love to talk about this pastor is a better teacher than that pastor. We love to talk about, well, this church does it this way and that church. And we just love to first lead a conversation oftentimes by saying what we're divided by rather than what we're together with. And God's saying, you're one. I wanted you to be one. The message that my son on his deathbed screamed out to us was be one, be a family, be together, be tied together today. Amen. Is anybody alive today? Amen. We're going to read, flip to 1 Corinthians 12 because Paul just reemphasizes this. 
And he reemphasizes it in a different way. Tori did a fantastic job last week of preaching about this idea of uh, different gifts, that all of us in here in the, in the family have different giftings, have different equippings, that we are able to come together and be able to operate and do more because of that. And so uh, it's amazing. Paul's going to actually continue some of this mentality here. And here's the thing you got to know about the background of uh, Corinthians, that Paul really knew this church really, really, really well. It was a port city, Corinth. It was a port city. It was a very economic, thriving city. It had a lot of hustle and bustle going on. The city was uh, uh, filled with different kinds of temples. So, man, honestly, I'll be real with you. It made me think a lot of Austin. I thought, well, there's a lot of different faiths. There's a lot of different sort of people worshiping this and that. It's a very hustling economic city. Man, come March 14th, this city just turns into like double the size. Thank you, South by Southwest. And, we, and, and Paul would spend a year and a half in this bustling city, and lots of people after a year and a half, began to follow Jesus. What a shocker that relationship leads to somebody actually hearing about the gospel of Christ. Paul moves on to start other churches. He creates this church in Corinth. He moves on to start other churches, and he gets word from his friends. He's like, hey, Paul, what's up? Uh, there's been a lot of issues going on here in Corinth. I want to tell you about it. And Paul hears all about it, and so he writes a letter back to them. And this letter of Corinthians is broken into five different parts, five different issues that were occurring in this church. And Paul addresses all five of them. He goes to address every single one of them. By the way, just another side note. I'm a little ADD this morning. Sorry. A side note. Church is messy. Church is messy. I don't know if you're looking for the perfect church, uh, you might want to leave here, okay? Uh, if, you, if you're looking for the perfect pastor, you definitely want to leave here this morning, okay? Because it's messy. Everybody in here is messy. Discipleship is messy. It's a, Tori tells me this all the time, thank you. It's a long, long process, Nick. Let it work itself out. That's what God wants to tell us in family. You're like, I know my family is so messy, we just left the holidays, amen? It's messy, and church is messy. And so we sometimes have this idea and this notion that there's like this utopian church out there. If we just be an Acts 2 church, brother, why can't we just be an Acts 2 church this morning, you know? That's wonderful. It's amazing that God gave us a picture. He showed us what the church would look like when they operated in love and humility and in service and togetherness. And it's a beautiful picture. But guys, one chapter later, he's, God is smiting liars and killing them on the ground right then and there. I mean, it's wild. The rest of the book of Acts is just this messy hodgepodge of blah. I mean, it's everywhere. And all these letters that you read in the rest of the New Testament is about Paul and the writers correcting these churches on how they're living and giving us today guidelines and saying, look, this is how it's to be done. This is beautiful. We're so privileged that we have this word of God today, that we can look and see this is, we have people who literally heard from God, walked, saw God, Paul himself saw God, and then writes and tells this isn't the way to do it. This is the way to do it. This is the way to walk. This isn't the way to walk. And this is amazing. So Paul writes this letter, and he responds to all five of the divisions, all five of the problems by sharing the gospel. Wow. Wow. And he showers them with grace. He showers them with love. Man, I, I'm going to be real with you uh, just for a second. I'm, if you can't figure it out, I'm a loud person. <laughs> I'm a boisterous person. Uh, that sometimes causes some problems, okay? 
I sometimes can uh, be, it can feel like I'm being confrontational or my tone maybe is a little too sharp. And, man, I, I don't want it to be, but I'm learning as I grow and I'm moving into my later 30s how to do that a little bit more effectively. But what I, what I realized is, uh, is I've got to often repent for some of those things. I've got to go to people and tell them, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for that to come out that way. I didn't mean it for the sound that way. Paul goes to people, and he does this sort of, a, I call it the stroke punch stroke, you know. He, like, gives them a little grace. We love you. Greetings, brother in Christ. We love you. We, we miss you. Uh, by the way, don't do this ever again. And he, like, kind of hits them a couple times. And then he's like, prepare room for me. I'll see you soon. And he's like, see ya. I'm out. You know, it's like, it's like, what? it's a beautiful leadership example. And that's what Tori does all the time with me. I'm telling you right now. He's like, man, you are amazing at this. You are great, brother. Get this together. Okay, we're going to go get it together. I love you. Come over for dinner. Natalie's cooking tonight. And I'm like, oh, great. It's awesome. And that's what he does here. And here's what he says. He's addressing the problems at the beginning of chapter 12. He's addressing the problems, and he's addressing specifically their weekly worship gathering. And he is... Some people in the church are having these powerful worship experiences, and, and some of them are praying out loud, and they're praying in tongues, and they're praying in different languages, and others would get so caught up in this, they would interrupt and interrupt it all, and it created a little bit of a chaotic moment. And so in these chapters, Paul helps them think of the purpose of the gathering, and he helps them think and reminds them of the purpose of the family. And he uses this imagery of a human body, and this is what he says. Verse 1, now, concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying here? He's saying the real spirituality, real spirituality and real people, spiritual people, are connected to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God makes much of Jesus. So if you ever have somebody say, I'm very spiritual, it's a very common thing to say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. What Paul is saying here is that's impossible. Unless you see that Jesus is Lord, has authority over your life, and you give that authority to him over your life, that you are missing the mark on what he is saying spirituality is. And he goes on to say this, verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but the same God. You're seeing a pattern here? By the way, Hermeneutics 101, Bible Interpretation 101, if you see the same word over and over and over and over, just circle it. God's trying to tell you something. Same, 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 one, one, one. And he says to them, to, and there are a variety of activities, but in the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what? For what? Come on. The common good. He's saying to us today that God gives us the gifts. He gives the things that you have in your life for the common good of we, for the togetherness of we. You came to Jesus because the Spirit came in you. He revealed to you that Jesus Christ was Lord, and then he separated gifts and he imparted them into you so that we would be stronger, so that we could take that for the common good of the family. And he's saying, how do you know you're spiritual? My, point, my second point today is he says to you, true spirituality works itself out in the context of community. So if you want to grow, point number two, in your faith, in your spirituality, he's saying that the way to grow is that everybody's got gifts. Everybody's got all these different things going on that God has given them. And if you want to grow spiritually, get around those people. Get around the family. 
We need a spirit. We spiritually grow in the context of our family. We are a family, and we grow in the context of our family. So my question for you today is simply this. Are you growing spiritually? Do you feel... Now, now let me be careful how I phrase this. Because it's like, uh, how many mothers do we have in here? Can you just raise your hands? Hi, mothers. Don't be afraid. It's all right. I'm not going to call you up on stage. Okay, keep your hands up for a second. Mothers, do you see the changes in your children? Yes, no, maybe so. We hear a yes. Okay, you can put your hands down. If I ask the rest of you in here, do you see the changes in yourself well? Most of y'all are going to be like, no, man, I suck. I just, you're going to list all these negative, negative things. It's like taking a Polaroid picture. If I stared at a child and looked at a child in their face and stared at them for three months straight and just looked at them, I would never know that they're changing. But if I took a snapshot at one month, took a snapshot at four months, took a snapshot at eight months, took a snapshot at 12 months, you would see the growth. And this is how God sees you. So let me just say this to you. God knows you're growing, and I promise you, you are most likely growing. But the question that I think God has imparted and spoken and and the Spirit has urged me today to ask is, are you growing spiritually? And maybe if you don't feel like it as much, maybe it's because you're not in a community. Maybe it's because you're not around other people who can do what Tori does, stroke, punch, stroke, you know what I mean? Or who can build you up and say, man, you're killing it at this. I went last night, um, I was with the University of Texas Young Life last night, and I was helping them with their event there. They had 80 college freshmen, boys. I say boys, because, I mean, no, no pun intended. I, some of them are growing more, and some of them are manly. They're in this transition to manhood, is probably what I should say. That's a nice way of saying it. And... I'm watching them sit around a fire, and you know what the message was last night? It was this. You need each other. Don't listen to what the fraternities and these guys are telling you and what some of the, everybody else is speaking to you that, that, that you can go by yourself and you figure this out on your own. You need each other. Get around each other. Encourage each other. And so God is telling us in the scripture today that he's building us. He's building a family. My third point is this, this. While he's building that family, there's an enemy, and there's enemies to the building of us. Now, not only just an actual enemy, by the way, I just want to be honest this morning, we believe in spiritual warfare. We believe that there is a devil that it says he is out to devour, to steal, to kill, to destroy, to divide. He wants nothing more than for us not to go to two services. He wants nothing more than for us not to expand. He wants nothing more for you to be rooted and planted in here. He wants to shred. That word divide literally means to devour, to shred it apart. And so we have an actual enemy, but I think we also have other, two other enemies. And it's our flesh and it's the world. I'm so fascinated. I, I looked at some of the research of what's going on in our world right now, and I listened to a couple people speak about it. I read a couple articles, and, and uh, I want to present to you two ideas today just to see in your life and what, if you see this. But what do I mean by that is that uh, two of the greatest threats, I think, right now to the spirit building this church and building us and building the family of God and building your community is the concepts of individualism and our achievement-based culture. What do I mean by that? Pew Research uh, did a couple years ago an, uh, a, a survey, and they found out that one in four millennials are unaffiliated with any faith at all. So they claim to be unaffiliated with any faith at all. It's higher than any generation before them, unaffiliated with any faith. In the same exact survey, they asked them, do you pray daily? 
And more people said that they prayed daily than any other generation in the history of mankind. Do you see the issue here? We have a group of people who are becoming our next leaders of our nation, becoming it's a lot of us, me, you, all. And what we are saying is that we uh, want to be unaffiliated with any faith, but we pray a lot. It's really peculiar. It's really interesting. The same, uh, in the same study, we found out that 18% of millennials say that they go to a, only, only 18 say they go to a religious service weekly. And of those who do say they go, less than half say they attend on a regular basis. What we find is that unaffiliation, that word unaffiliation, the official definition is this, not officially attached or connected to any group or organization. And what we're seeing and what I believe is driving this is this idea of individualism, this idea that I'm about myself, I want to be, I want to do things the way I want to do it, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, but I don't want anybody else telling me, and I don't want to be attached or committed to anybody else. Uh, June Ann Greeley is a professor, and she's a professor at, uh, forgive me, I'm looking it up, Sacred Heart University. And she says this, it's going to be on the screen, people don't seem to have the time, energy, or interest to delve deeply into one faith or religious tradition. So they move throughout life collecting ideas and practices and tenets that appeal most to them and their self, but making no connection to any group of people. What she's saying is we roll through life like it's an Instagram feed. We go, hey, I like that, double tap like that, I don't like that, I'm going to unfollow that, I'm going to follow that, I'm going to go there, but I'm just going to do this. And what we're saying is on the outside, we, uh, we want to look and see what's going on. We want to be able to know what's happening, what's going on. We like to feel good and warm and fuzzy about things, but we won't, don't want to commit. We don't have a desire to commit to a group of people. Jean Twenge, who is another professor, that's her name, by the way, I didn't make that up. Jean Twenge, amazing name. Uh, she's a professor at San Diego State University. She said this. We found that religious involvement is low where individualism is high. Individualism is a cultural system that places more emphasis on self and less on social rules. It conflicts with religion, especially if religion involves following rules or being part of a group. So what you get is this rise of the phrase, I'm spiritual, but a less desire to be connected to a people. What you get is a people saying, I want to be an autonomous person. I want to choose what I want. I want no one to tell me where to go. I want to be connected spiritually, but I don't want the hassle of you people. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing when one in five Americans this year will report that they're lonely. And it's a sad thing when loneliness can lead to a shorter life and when loneliness can be a deterrent to your health. It's a sad thing when the church of God is a family, and yet this is what's happening. Now has never been a time for the church to be a family. There's, I'm sorry, let me say that again. I just said that wrong. There's never been a time for the church to be a family more so than right now in this moment. you believe that? There has never been a time, I think, that is more serious for us to be a city on a hill a light, a rooted tree that creates shade for people to get under. You know, aspen groves uh, are not actually, aspens are not actually trees by themselves. They're part of a grove. 
They're, they're multiple trees. They're an organism together. The, they, they're called clones, actually. And so all the individual aspens are part of a larger entity. And together, when they're in a forest, they create a lot of shade. And that's the story. That's us. That's our family. We grow together. What's crazy is that when they need, like when one tree is uh, weaker than the other one, uh, they give nutrients. They send nutrients to that tree specifically. When one gets burned, they send everything they can to that tree. And they start to care. The, the stronger ones care for the weaker ones. The weaker ones get built back up by the strong ones. It's a beautiful picture of what God calls us to be. But the problem is this individual life, it's not working for us. But we need each other. There's a, I'm going to be real cheesy here for a second. Forgive me. My, my masculinity moment is going to come out right here. I get to have one, okay? And it's this. I love the movie Gladiator, okay? Amazing movie. Man, it just fires me up every single time I watch it. You got this Roman general pulled into slavery, leads all these like ragtag dudes like to, to fight uh, all these other gladiators and he just like slays them all, okay? And there's like lions jumping out, you know, and he's like swinging at them and it's amazing. But he makes this comment, there's this point where he gets to like the main stage and he gets to the biggest Colosseum in Rome and he's with these men and it's like the worst odds they've ever faced, okay? And they're standing there and they're all like shaking and they're in front of the gates and he looks at them all and he realizes he's got to say something because like a general has to say something in a moment like that, right? And he says this to them. He says, whatever comes out of these gates, we have a better chance of survival if we work together. If we stay together, we survive. And they go out there and, of course, they slay it. I mean, they kill it. It's amazing. But that is the story, right, for us. If we are together, there's more. There's more for your life if you're together with somebody. There's more spiritual growth for your life if you're with a community of people. The problem is, is we are confusing connection with communion. We're confusing this idea of being connected with more followers and more, more people. And, and, and we think we're connected. We're staring at these lives of people on Facebook and Instagram and social media. And we see people from afar, but we just are not communing with them. And God calls us into communion. A 1950s study says this. They, they've been asking stuff, uh, they've been asking this question to every generation since the 1950s. They've been asking this question every single generation. How many friends do you have that you could absolutely call in the middle of a crisis? And what's crazy is that number has been drastically declining since the 1950s. The ironic part of it is the square footages of our house have been increasing since the 1950s. It's not our fault. This isn't like a shame thing this morning, but this is the message. It's as believers, we have to be aware. We have to be informed that this is the America that we are in right now that says, give me space, and I don't want to get that close. We are more connected. I want to see what you're doing, but less community. I want to live my life with you. That just feels weird saying that. I want you to live life with me. It feels bizarre. Individualism is high, and it's an enemy to building us. The second enemy I just want to tell you as we're getting close to the end here is building, the second enemy to building us is this achievement-based culture. I heard a message from a pastor uh, up in Dallas, Matt Chandler, and uh, it really impacted me. It really did something in me, and it caused me to question a lot of things in my life. And what he said was this, what do I mean by achievement-based culture? We are told today and this day and day out, that we must achieve to have any value at all in this life. 
We value process and steps more than patience. Probably some of y'all in here this morning want me to give you the six-step process to how to get a better community and a better family. (laughs) We want the four things to do to fix our life. We want doing more than being, and we're warped by the shame in our lives, and we're told on every front that we're just not enough. Even our own play has become performance with social media. Uh, Brene Brown, who's a researcher at University of Houston, has written a New York Times bestselling book called Daring Greatly. And she elaborates on this, and she says this. Here's how she explains our achievement-based culture for women specifically. The real struggle for women, what amplifies shame regardless of the category, is that we're expected and sometimes desired to be perfect, yet we're not allowed to look as if we're working for it. We want to just materialize somehow. Everything should be effortless. The expectation is to be natural beauties, natural mothers, natural leaders, naturally good parents, and we want to belong to a naturally fabulous family. (laughs) Her argument for women is achievement culture for a woman. uh, Her argument is this, that achievement culture for a woman forces them into an impossibility. It's impossible to naturally be perfect. It's possible to be perfect, much less try to make it look natural. The message is this. This is what she believes women are hearing every single day. Be perfect. Women, tell me if this is accurate or not. Be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it. And don't take time away from anything like your family or your partner or your work to achieve your perfection. If you're really good, perfection should be easy. Don't upset anyone or hurt anybody's feelings. But please, say what's on your mind. Dial up the sexuality after the kids are down, though, and after the dog has walked, and after the house is clean. But dial it way down at PTA meetings. Oh, geez. And whatever you do, please don't compare or don't confuse the two. Just be yourself. But not if it means being shy or unsure There's nothing sexier than self-confidence, especially if you're young and smoking hot. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but please be honest. Don't get too emotional, but don't be too detached either. Too emotional uh, and you're hysterical and too detached and you're just a cold-hearted witch. Okay, she didn't use that word, but I'm a pastor. She's a professor, so I changed some things around here today. The point is, is that she says that women... And this achievement-based culture, feel the weight of perfection. They have to be perfect. They have to get it right. I mean, is that not this social media thing? I'm not dogging on social media. If you follow, like, if you know me, I, like, love social media. But it's understanding this. It's being aware of this. You scroll through this at night, late at night, and you see they've got the perfect dinner. You know, maybe the, the salad that they grew in their back of their yard. You know, like, right? I just pulled it all together and just made it happen, you know? So-and-so's kid is doing really well, got that award, and my kid didn't. And we just start this, this, this I'm not good enough mentality. And what we do is we then pull away from this family, this community, because God forbid any of us in here were a mess. God forbid any of us had anything wrong with our lives. And you know what she says about men? She says this. She says, basically, men live under the pressure of one unrelenting message. Do not be perceived weak. Don't fail. Don't fail at work. Don't fail in marriage. Don't fail in bed. Don't fail with your money. Don't fail with your children. It doesn't matter. Don't fail. Don't be wrong. Don't be soft. Don't reveal any weakness or fear. And don't get criticized and don't be ridiculed. Women, believe they have to be perfect. Men, feel like they cannot be weak. And let me be clear today, women, you are not perfect. Men, you are weak. You are. That feels weird. You're like, Nick, chill out, dude. No, you are. That's the gospel. We don't need Jesus if we're strong. And the weakness is when God is made strong. 
And we hide and we put up these shells and these shells and these layers. And God's saying, there is a place, there is a space, there is a people that you need to draw into so you don't have to feel that perfection. So you don't have to feel like you got it all together. So you can tell somebody, though I lift 800 pounds at the gym and I take creatine and steroids, I'm still weak. You know what I mean? It's okay. And this is what the church and the family of God is. This is what community is. But it terrifies us from being open. It terrifies us from being honest. It terrifies us from being vulnerable. And so we are a family. We spiritually grow in family. We have enemies working against this family. And the last thing I'll say today is we need a diverse family. Amen. Man, that was kind of like a two on a ten. I thought in a more diverse church it was going to be a little bit crazier than that. But, uh, you know, you say, fine, Nick. I get this. I need a community. I'm going to go hang out with people that look like me, talk like me, dress like me. Uh, I got kids, so I'm going to hang out with only people with other kids. Uh, I'm single. I'm definitely not going to that house because I know how much that kid screams. Uh, No, you know, I always grew up white in the suburbs, so I'm not going to hang out with somebody of a different color. No, I always grew up in the hood, and so I'm not hanging out with that dude from the suburbs. And so what we do is we create these divisions and even more, and you're like, oh, man, I don't do that. No, but functionally, a lot of us do. Functionally, every day, a lot of us live this way. And this is what Paul says, and I'm going to close out this text right here. In verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were made to drink of one spirit. What Paul is saying here is it cannot get more opposite ends of the spectrum than a Jew and a Greek, a slave and a free in his day and age. He's saying these people were so far away from each other, and God says, no, they're together. He broke the dividing wall. He said, I'm going to put you in a family. Just think about this for a second. If you know anything about the disciples that followed Jesus, Jesus hand-selected these disciples, and every single one of them was very different very distinct than the next. You had one who was a zealot, okay? That was someone who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And you had one who was a tax collector who would go in and go to the people and he would extort money from them and he would steal it illegally from them and then he would give it to that government that was raping and pillaging their people. And then God, Jesus, comes along, sits them at a table and says, get along, you're a family, And he puts them there and he says, if you want to be in my family, then you got to be with each other. If you want to know me and if you want to love me, you have to love the brother and sister that's not like you. Man, we, what would it be like if the church, the well community church, became the greatest picture in the city of Austin of community, friendship, diversity that wasn't, that just displayed to everybody. This is what it's supposed to be like. Right now, there's so much arguing over this and bickering. It's so hard to even listen to it, and we need to listen to it. We need to hear it. But you know what we need more than listening to it? We need to live it. Amen? I got no amens on that. I thought maybe for sure. They will know you by your love. And if you're missing out, and then the last thing I'll say is this, this if, if you're not in a diverse community right now, guess what? You are missing out on the potential of spiritual, greater spiritual growth. 
So what am I saying to you today? I'm saying three things to you. One, we're strengthened together. We are made stronger as a church. We are going to do great things in this city. I am speaking that out right now in the name of Jesus. This church will be here for a while. And it will do amazing things in this city. I pray to God that if this church was not around, that there would be a hole, there would be a gap, that the government would come to this church and say, man, we need you to come back together. We need you to pull back in together. We need you to regroup because you're not there. I mean, we're out here going, hey, can we just have 15 people to do a science fair deal? Man, can there be a greater message that the church becomes the church, the church becomes a community. I pray that for this church. I really pray it. But we've got to do it together. And it's going to take time. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be a slow process. But we're strengthened together. Do you know that when you bungee, has anybody ever heard of bungee jumped? Anybody bungee jumped? Yeah, I love it. I bungee jumped one time, and I, right before I went, they told me, hey, did you know this thing is made up of like millions of rubber bands? I was like, not a thing to tell somebody before you jump off of a bridge. But it's literally plastic, like that little rubber. And they band them all and intertwine them all together. And together, they're able to withstand that pressure, that pull, that hold. They're strengthened together. Redwoods, I talked about aspens, redwood trees. I love the picture of a tree for the church. I think it's why God uses it and says that you, uh, maybe you'd be planted like oaks of righteousness. The, the redwoods uh, are... 500 tons that can go up over 350 feet. But did you know their root system's only less than 10 feet? Because they all go into the ground. They don't have a tap root. They have each other. And they grab along and on to each other. And so they withstand and they last 2,500 years long. So we are strengthened together. We are shaped together. Scripture says iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Can we be clear today? We are asking you, and saying, if you're part of this church, we want you to be in a community, a smaller, this is a large community, this is a large family, but we want you in smaller families to where you are known, where you don't have to be perfect, where you can let down your guard. And I will tell you, as people come together, as two objects get closer, tension and sparks occur. Iron sharpens iron. It causes things to come off. It causes sparks to fly. Don't quit. Don't give up. Something is happening when that occurs. And lastly, we can accomplish more together. So we need you. That's my pitch today. We need you. We've told you that before. It's nothing new. We want you. We're excited for where we're headed. But we want you to be here in our family. And if you're here, you know, if you're new, I get it. If it's your first time here, I understand. But if you've been coming here, and you come in and you get in the back and you know like one or two people, you're missing out. You're missing out on what God has for you. You got to understand that there's more. And you're wondering what it is and I'm telling you it's the people around you. That God wants you to know them. And I will tell you this, this is something you got to know. I'm a motivator at best. I can stand up here, and Tori can stand up here last week, and all of us can stand up here and say, hey, this is what you should do. Come on, let's go. One, two, three, you know, and we're all excited. Rah, 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 charge the hill. But that's all we can do. You need the Spirit of God to change your heart. You need the Spirit to tell you, and right now tell you in this moment, you've been alone, and there are people that need you, want you, and you need them. And so I can motivate you today. I can do that. 
But my vision up here has a shelf life of the great. <laughs> it will last until next week. It will. Actually, probably some of y'all are going to go eat pizza after this and be like, well, that was great. Cool. Pepperoni, please, you know. Some of you got to stop hiding in here. Some of you got to stop thinking that you're the Savior. You, you, you got to stop thinking that you have more shade than you really do. You know what I mean? Some of you are in community. But you feel like I got to take everybody in. I got to take everybody in. That's not healthy either. Some of you need to lower expectations and understand, like we said earlier, that the church isn't perfect. It means that your preferences won't always matter. Some of you need to, what Tori has been saying the past few weeks, join the family. Join a community group. Today is an opportunity for that. At the end of this gathering, out there, as they said, there will be a bunch of community group tables out there. It's a great way. We know it's intimidating to go meet people. So we put the leaders out there. Some of them have made some great food for you. Wow, I'm probably going to come and steal some, just to let you know. But it's a great opportunity to meet some people today. And you know what? Here's what I want to tell you. This is my out for you as a pastor here at this church. I want you to give it a shot. If it doesn't work, if you don't like it, if it's awkward, it will be awkward, by the way. Some of it will be awkward. It's always awkward walking to a stranger's home. But if it doesn't, if, it, if it's something that you're like, man, I don't like it, I want you to go and try another one. I want you to date a community group. Figure out if it's the, most of y'all do it anyways without that permission. But I'm just saying, I want you to date a community group. Figure out if it's the right place for you. I'm telling our leaders tonight with Tori, it's on them to help us, and it's on you to help us set the temperature of a room, to create a space. If you're like, man, if you're in a community group right now, and you're like, man, it's killing me. It's so hard. Be the tone setter. Be the one who changes some things in there. Don't be a, th a thermometer that goes into there and you just feel the temperature of the room. Be a thermostat. Be, yeah, I'm serious. Like, change the temperature. What does this group need? Do you, as someone who attends a community group, walk in and go, what do we need right now? Go talk to that leader. Help that leader out. They might have so much going on. But be someone who changes it. Be somebody who makes a difference and helps build this family. And I'll just end by telling you this. The greatest spiritual shaping tool is us. So if you want to grow, you got to get around people. If you want to grow, you got to get around people. you got to jump in a family. If it's not this church, find the church and get rooted. Families grow by love and sacrifice. Amen? Families grow by love and sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we love you. I love you so much. And Lord, I, uh, I know that my life was changed because of 16 guys that I walked with in college, ended up living with many of them. And I know, Lord, that there were many, many times that that was difficult and uncomfortable. And I pray, God, for people in here today. I pray and I ask you, that you would do only what you can do. I pray that you would stir in people's hearts today to help them realize I'm alone and I need people. And I pray that you would help break down the pride to say that to somebody. I pray that they would know that everybody can't solve their needs. You can. But I pray that they would hear and know that you've given us to each other to help be an image and a picture of you. And so, God, we ask for these things by your power, by your name. In Jesus' name, amen.